You are listening to The Crisis Beat with Dr. Mark Crowther and Brady Wood. All right, and uh, welcome back. This is uh, Brady Wood, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Mark Crowther. Welcome to The Crisis Beat, Episode 3, and our date today of November 6th, uh, 2022. I'm a business owner and public relations professional, and my co-host is, in his other life, the chair of medicine at McMaster University. And this episode, we're going to be looking at primarily the case of Tiger Woods and his uh, um, 2010 or so sex scandal, the apology and related brand fallout. We'll also go through some recent uh, crises news and uh, give us a chance to dig into some of the uh, literature as well on the topic and some best practices. Um, so, Mark, I, I want, wanted to kick us off. Any any breaking news of the week for you that uh, you thought uh, that resonated? Yeah, thanks, Brady, and great to be back. A couple things I think that came out of this week, uh, just to keep this a bit topical. So the first is uh, uh, during our discussion prior to starting the recording, we were talking about some of the athletes over the last week or so who've been in the news because of, frankly, unacceptable anti-Semitic comments. And and some of that fits directly into what we're going to talk about. I don't know if you have any comments about those uh, or the, the newsworthiness of them. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think so. So for sure, uh, Kanye West uh, made some anti-Semitic remarks about. Uh, actually, I won't even repeat the content. It's it's typical stereotyping, um, and uh, about uh, control of in the entertainment industry. And then Kyrie Irving, uh, who plays for the Brooklyn Nets, so kind of around the same time, was also tweeting out about an anti-Semitic movie. Uh, both have faced uh, consequences. So Kanye West lost most of his brand affiliation deals, including his uh, deal with Adidas. Uh, supposedly, some of the news media said this dropped him out of billionaire status. Uh, he was pretty defiant, you know, essentially said something along the lines of, well, I, I still get to sleep with supermodels or something uh, kind of really dismissive. So no real apologetics on his part. And then I understand that Kyrie Irving has to fulfill a number of criteria to be able to return to to playing for the Nets. But um, I think financial consequences for both, and, and interestingly, both not overly apologetic. So more seeing this as a uh, for themselves a free speech thing, whereas most of us would see this as uh, fairly repugnant. And uh, just by coincidence, Mark, as you know, I was in I was in uh, Poland for some of our our work together on in another part of life, and. Uh, uh, I'm just back from Auschwitz and Birkenau, uh, which was a profound trip. So to to see this kind of anti-Semitic uh, argument uh, coming out, uh, you know, it's it's painful. But I also think maybe it's timely in the sense that it's a, it's a good reminder that these opinions still exist and we have to be vigilant. So in a way, these two kind of perverse people or people guilty of perverse infractions are, are doing us a bit of a service to say that 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 vigilance never ends. Um, but yeah, fascinating to see not, not a big apology. And as we'll get into around Tiger, there, there's probably some benefit to the brands of quick dispensing with these folks. Yeah. And I think uh, just to go back to the science of it all, um, there's actually a little bit of science to this whole area uh, in general in crisis management, which is kind of the underlying theme of the entire series of podcasts. And in this particular area, it also seems from the preparation work we've done for this uh, for this discussion that there's a little bit of uh, science about how sports celebrities or anybody else who's in the public eye should handle these kind of uh, issues when they crop up. And, you know, almost always these are a little bit different than crises that businesses might face because a business crisis is, you know, oftentimes something unpredictable or untoward or, you know, weather related or something like that. Whereas um, almost all of these are 
completely self-induced, meaning that there was behavior which was beyond sort of our concept of normal. There was statements which are beyond our concept of normal. And then the athlete are more likely their infrastructure that surrounds them goes into damage control mode and how they deal with that damage control mode, I think ultimately will reflect upon the value that the public personality preserves some cases grows and in some cases essentially is utterly destroyed. And as with many other areas of crisis management, it seems to me that, you know, the first couple of days or weeks after an event um, is absolutely crucial to brand preservation and in some cases brand growth. Uh, what, what comments do you have about that, Brady? Yeah, well, I think um, what, what um, you know, you talked about how these folks are reacting. We are going to get into that, that theory that we're going to be talking about an image restoration theory. One thing that jumps off the page at me, and I, I don't mean to sidestep your question, but um, with with Kanye in particular, it's like he's outside of the image restoration behavior, like he's almost adding a new category. So we'll get into like the, the best practices, but he's in this kind of, it's not even denial, he's far on the left, on, on the right side of this, of being like openly defiant and not caring. But I think that... Um, for the most part, it's, it feels like the corporate infrastructure on this one has worked really efficiently to try to metabolize their their player or their endorsed celebrities' poor behavior. Um, but I, I haven't I haven't you know kind of like bisected or parsed this enough to know if Adidas or Balenciaga or the Brooklyn Nets were really quick enough. And so maybe that's that's. Uh, I think we kind of envision this episode as our first of maybe many episodes, just as our last episode was about influencers. This one's being about sports, celebrity, and endorsement. Um, so we may frame this episode under that banner and, and revisit some of this. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and I think the other thing that we're probably going to touch on at some point during the course of the conversation today is that um, companies may attain value through, as you just said, immediately metabolizing, <laughs> which is an interesting way of putting it. Some of these people by getting, by breaking that relationship um, very quickly, that can actually increase uh, the value of the company because people, I think, uh, seeing that as, uh, afford some value to the company in terms of their 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 personal expectations around behavior. But then secondarily, sometimes companies um, can kind of, you know, go go quiet but not break their relationship only to reemerge later in a stronger position when that celebrity um, rebuilds their profile. And I think that will come up in some of our discussions later on today as well. 100%. Um, Mark, I don't know, I, I don't want to belabor it, but also this week we had some interesting uh, developments on the Elon Musk buying Twitter saga. So I thought that was also worth just mentioning that uh, um, sponsorship across the site dec declined almost immediately upon his purchase and termination of some 50% of the employees there. And uh, essentially, he went into kind of the denial and evade responsibility mode by saying that it's about activists driving brands to drop Twitter. Um, and I don't know about you, but I think most people would agree that it's actually um, his kind of um, haphazard uh, communication style and management style that's probably led brands to say this isn't a great thing. Um, and then I also saw that Biden was then saying that, you know, you criticize Elon Musk for buying Twitter and that it's a platform that spews lies. And I was kind of like not really clear why Biden kind of stepped in on this one. Like it almost it didn't seem like a, a typical Biden off the cuff, unanticipated comment. It seemed like a planned comment. So, I, again, I'm not sure what the White House strategy is around weighing in on Twitter or the Demo maybe it's more Democrat versus Republican strategy of weighing in this way. But 
clear that um, um, Elon's comment, Elon Musk's comments are, are and actions are reverberating a, a, across the value of Twitter and its ability to raise money. Yeah, I suspect from the Twitter perspective, and again, I have no knowledge about this, but I've watched this with interest. You know, I, I watched this week um, uh, uh, SpaceX simultaneously landing two boosters from the Falcon Heavy, uh, and and also that you know when you drive down the road uh, near where I live. You see an awful lot of Teslas, so I would think it would be stupid to underestimate Elon Musk and also underestimate the amount of thought he has put into what he's doing. It might seem haphazard, but yeah, well, I think so. it would be a it would be a, uh, a bad strategy to assume it's haphazard. There's a I think a Machiavellian, uh, well articulated plan in almost everything he does. I think the brand strategy reaction is actually completely predictable. Like, you know, companies don't like unknowns. They don't like variables. They don't like not knowing what's going to happen in three months. And I think anything that uh, Elon Musk touches has a certain amount of unpredictability, at least until it starts to run on all cylinders, like SpaceX and uh, the uh, the car company is now. And and so. You know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what Twitter evolves into um, over time. I suspect there will be a lot less oversight of the platform. Um, it was interesting that Jack Dorsey, I don't know if you saw this, Brady, actually uh, weighed in on this on Twitter and, and said that he actually was agreeing with uh, Elon Musk that there was way too many employees for the revenue line and that he actually supported, it seemed from the comments that I read, the actual reduction in staffing. So it's, you know, it's, it's awful for those many thousands of people who received termination notices completely out of the blue on Friday. On the other hand, as we're going to talk about throughout all of these podcasts, you know, companies exist to make money for their shareholders and all of the other benefits that spin off are haphazard and and only occur if the companies are successful. Uh, and so you know, we have to keep that in mind when we're talking about what's motivating companies. It's it's a idealism for most companies is probably going to be a secondary aim uh, over and above that of making sure the company can continue to operate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. No, well said on the on the strategy there as well. Like I do, I I agree with you wholeheartedly that uh, we'd probably be underestimating Elon Musk to think that he's just shooting from the hip all the time because he seems to be very effective at these like kind of pump and dump maneuvers with crypto that advantage him and other things. So I think it's it's not uh, um, it's not necessarily just what you see is what you get in this case. Um, so, Mark, I think we're going to move into our discussion of Tiger Woods uh, crises. So Tiger's been involved in a couple of uh, of car accidents and a major sex scandal over the years. I think we're going to first um, and if you'll bear with me, I'm going to I'm going to go through the, a little bit of a timeline of the of the crisis that we're discussing. Um, interestingly, when I when I thought back to this around the 2009, 2010 time when we were when this was all happening, um, my recollection was just more about a, what felt like an inauthentic um, communication from Tiger. Um, and now that I've dug back into the issue, it's, it's far more nuanced and complicated and, and interesting. And there are some signs of well-thought communication paralleled with some missteps. So I think this one's a very fascinating case. And it's a fascinating case for us because there's some good literature around this that's come out of the academic literature. Uh, analyzing and parsing the effect on on the sponsoring brands that have sponsored him. Um, and Mark, maybe it's worth saying there, I mean, one, one thing I, I think we strive to do in this podcast is to um, raise awareness that there, there is literature about crisis communications best practice. And some of it aspires to be empirical. So there is some measurement folks are attempting to put into this over the years. It's certainly not as rigorous as the 
sort of evidence-based medicine world that that you come from and I get to participate in a little bit. I didn't know if you wanted to comment there, Mark, on just the caliber of the of the journals, and we'll we'll speak to what journals we are uh, receiving information from. And we'll also make these articles, at least links to these articles available in the description of the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Brady. Um, I, you know, it, it's a great point that uh, we are very fortunate in many ways in medicine that we can tell patients that getting intervention X will reduce the rate of outcome Y from 17% to 12% because people have done research projects, which allowed them to reliably detect a change of 5%. I think it's really important to notice that that is not true for many questions in medicine because that research has not been done. But more importantly, it's not true for almost other areas of science. And so, you know, when we talk about the psychology literature, which is essentially what we're talking about here, psychology and sociology literature, the large majority of that is not done with the degree of technical rigor that we would expect in order to have a therapy approved for humans. And so, you know, we're going to talk today about some, um, uh, I think, uh, more frameworks about how uh, people should respond to this and then the author's feelings or some kind of semi-quantitative assessment of how effective that is but it's never the le- the literature is never going to be at the level where we can say with perfect confidence that a, that an intervention is going to definitively improve the outcome and even more so it'll improve the outcome by 10% or more. So, you know, if people are listening to this podcast expecting us to tell you how to improve your brand value by 10%, first of all, we are not experts in that area, but secondarily, I don't think anybody can tell you that um, because if they can, then they would be extraordinarily wealthy and living somewhere warm all the time. Uh, So, you know, people are prone to say stuff and then have trouble backing it up. But the literature you brought together for this, um, which we both had a look at, is actually, I think, as good as it gets. And it actually does provide a lot of extraordinarily useful insights into how these kind of events can be managed. So probably worth, uh, Brady, you just giving us a quick summary of exactly what happened, and then maybe we can talk about some of the science behind it. Sure. Yeah, maybe just kick off by saying I think um, I don't know how much conjecture there is about this, but it's probably safe to say that that Tiger is maybe the greatest of all time when it comes to golf. So I was shocked at some of his stats, but uh, 82 PGA Tour wins, so tied for the most all time with with another golfer, Um, 15 major championships. He's the only player to win four consecutive majors. Uh, He has the lowest scoring average in PGA Tour history. Um, and uh, he was the PGA Tour Player of the Year record of 10 times. He went pro at uh, 20 years of age. So just a remarkable career and just uh, brought um, some electricity to the game. He's largely credited by other players as bringing a, a new world of sponsorship to golf as well. So at one point, he was making $100 million a year himself in sponsorship, and that had a rippling effect to the other players on the tour. Um, so just remarkable contributor from a business and, and obviously from uh, pro sports perspective. Um, He he was also at the time, so the scandal broke, it looks like around November 27th of 2009. And uh, at the time, you know, seen as like, uh, just a sort of untouchably good person on in every dimension of his life, married with two kids, uh, top of his game. And then uh, there was this strange uh, report. Well, it started with a report in the National Enquirer about uh, Tiger Woods having an affair. Um, and then it looks like shortly after, uh, he pulled out of the driveway of, of his home at two 30 in the morning on November 27th, he steered, he drove his Escalade into hedges and a tree in the neighbor's yard before he crashed into a fire hydrant. 
And then apparently this collision woke up his wife who came running out of the house and broke the back window of the SUV with a golf club. And she got him into the street and sat with him as he drifted in and out of consciousness. And the 911 was called. And uh, I think he wasn't found to be intoxicated and he got a careless driving charge. And then there, there was a vague personal statement on his website. Um, so I, I could read that. But again, this if we track the, the timeline of these communications, it's interesting from a crisis and damage control spot, uh, perspective. So the first statement was just a private matter. I want to keep it this way. I understand there's curiosity. Uh, the only person responsible for the accident is me. My wife, Ellen, acted courageously when she saw I was hurt. She was the first person to help me. Any other assertion was absolutely false. So I think originally it was maybe characterized that she was like chasing him out of the house with the golf club and smashed the window, which I guess we'll never know if that's true. But I, I you know, defer to that being the official the official statement. Um and then that same same day, U.S. Weekly published a report um, that uh, uh, of of a second affair, and this one was uh, was one that actually really metastasized quickly. So uh, this one was named Rachel Uchitel. Um, it's it sounded like uh, they'd had a longer affair, um, and then uh, there was um, a, a second person named Jamie Grubbs. The the sort of um, um voicemails were voicemails were released uh including him saying like hey it's me can you delete my number from your phone my wife knows about this um and so there were a couple of months by the sounds of it um where more sort of tabloid fodder continued to come out without much much statement and then i'm not sure the date of this but then there was a uh, another statement from him that said that I've let my family down. I regret those transgressions with all my heart. I have not been true to my values and the behavior my family deserves. I'm not without faults and I'm short for perfect. I'm dealing with my behavior uh, and personal failings behind closed doors. And um, and then there was a sort of a radio silence. And then uh, and then after a few more weeks, uh, another statement, I'm deeply aware of the disappointment and hurt that my infidelity has caused to so many people, most of all my wife and children, he wrote. So he kind of admitted it. And then it wasn't until February that he actually did the this 15-minute press conference that I kind of vaguely had remembered as as just being awkward. And now I've, I've rewatched it. I don't know if you had a chance to watch that, Mark, but we can talk through that a little bit. And... Um, yeah, he came out kind of not looking like Tiger because he wasn't wearing a, a hat. He was wearing like a, a tieless dress shirt and suit. And um, yeah, it was, it was sort of sheepish. But also, you know, when I went back and read it, it was, it was fairly genuine admission of, of guilt and issues um, and uh, a full kind of admission of, of guilt. Um, and then uh, he took a sabbatical from golf and he lost uh, a lot of his sponsorship deals like Accenture, AT&T, Gatorade and General Motors. But then interestingly, and as we'll see from the literature, Nike's kept him. And I think that they obviously did uh, calculate correctly. Um, and then he he returned to the Masters uh, not that long uh, after. Like So if he had this admission of guilt in, in February, he was back playing in the Masters in March. Um, and so I think that leads us to the end of that brief history. Um, and now, interestingly, when we look back, so the the reported uh, I saw Forbes article that we we mentioned. I'll put this in the in the description. But um, 
Well, this was Sports Money from Forbes in June of this year, saying that Tiger Woods is officially a billionaire, primarily from sports uh, and other sponsorship deals, not from his winnings on golf. And uh, and that in addition to that, he was offered a high nine figures deal to play uh, the Saudi uh, sponsored uh, live tour, which he declined. Um, and then interestingly, this article speculates at the end that some of his struggles have actually contributed to the positive profile that he carries. And I think there might be some truth to that. So I'm not sure, Mark, maybe I'll stop there because that was a, a fairly long uh description of of what uh of of the scandal and some of its handlings um where where would you like to take us from here yeah i think so thanks brady that's a great summary and i know that that's taken almost exclusively from published sources just so people wonder where we got that from and again you'll put the information in the show notes and there's there's <clears throat> as you highlighted speculation as to what exactly occurred and when it occurred and you know that's not really relevant to the discussion today the discussion today is more about what what athletes what 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 athletes should do could do can do and and how do they recover from this kind of issue and i think it's super important to highlight that you know these people in the public eye are subjected to a degree of um external review scrutiny and the and and the consequences of their actions that 99.98% of people aren't subjected to. And so, you know, there's enormous benefits to being in the public eye in terms of your personal brand value and monetary. And some people just crave that kind of attention, but you know, this kind of flashback and um, the fact that you need to manage yourself and your brand, you know, is a, is a natural and logical consequence of that. And I suspect again, and I don't know this because I'm not involved in the world that, that when these people start to rise to prominence, you know, they they are they are a, a high level attractant for a group of people who are who manage um, people's careers, and then those managers would bring along the damage control experts. And as you said, except for some people who've gone what I would describe as extraordinarily rogue, almost all of these strategies that we're going to talk about in terms of recovery are not. You know, the, the, it wasn't the celebrity who came up with these. They are stage managed, carefully thought through by people who are probably making substantial amounts of money to advise the the person. And so, you know, as you said, um, uh, one of the marketers decided to stick with him through the course of all this. And that probably wasn't a coincidence. They had done some math and decided that laying low for a bit and then, uh, you know, rebuilding that relationship later on, the, the value of doing that exceeded the, the value of suddenly dropping uh, the athlete. And and similarly, other companies made the opposite decision because they looked at the brand value that they were obtaining from being associated with him and, and decided that the acute, uh, sometimes increase in their brand value from releasing him from their contracts uh, actually exceeded the long-term value of maintaining their relationship with them. So again, I think the message is that there's a science here um, and, and that there are practitioners of the science and it's a mistake um, if people who are in these situations think that they've got all the answers because, you know, you might be good at manufacturing widgets, but being good at manufacturing widgets doesn't make you good at handling brand control damage when you need to handle brand control damage. Might be worth this moving on, Brady, to talk a little bit about some of the science. So, you know, one of the things we'll link in the show notes is a, an, a, an academic paper um, published in the International Journal of Sports Communication with the first author of Meng and spending a bit of time looking at that. Um, uh, they they talk about uh, a kind of um, framework for 
relationship and uh, image restoration strategies, which was published in 1995 by Benoit. It's probably, I'll just mention what they say, what Benoit's um, uh, portended to say by these authors in terms of the stages that uh, an, an athlete could go through. And maybe we could just frame um, the Tiger Woods issue in these. So the first um, uh, stage is to deny, uh, which is probably not what we would generally recommend for a company that's in trouble, but seems to be a well-established pathway as outlined in this paper. Then evasion of responsibility, uh, work to reduce the offensiveness of the infraction, uh, then corrective answer, uh, corrective action. And then finally, the one that I really like is mortification, <laughs> um, which is essentially, you know, falling down on your knees and and telling people that you'll do better next time. And then I think what happens is, you know, for many athletes, uh, they don't ever reappear in the media because they've actually paid attention to that. But for other athletes, they have additional problems in the future. And, and you know, I think each time this happens, it probably becomes sequentially more difficult to recover. But there's multiple people who've offended multiple times who do recover. Uh, and it's just a matter of, you know, how powerful there's an allegiance between their fans and um, themselves. Yeah, and Mark, just a point of clarity there, I, I would say this isn't sort of like Kubler-Ross's stages of grief where you have to go through each one just for the readers at home. It's This is more like a taxonomy of, of the different approaches you can take. And I, I think in the previous episode, we, we mentioned Timothy Coombs, who has the situational crisis communications theory. And I think this work by Benoit works the same way. Like for this to pay off, you have to line up your strategy with the reality. So if you if you like lean back on the denial strategy, you better not you better not have responsibility because if you're denying it and they find that you do, that's that's where things get uh, get complicated. So um, yeah, so the, the stages again are uh, a denial. So you just deny that something happened, or you could evade responsibility. Uh, so maybe it was. Uh, something that happened in response to something else, or you can make some kind of an excuse. Um, the reducing offensiveness is, uh, you know, you can talk about good you've done or distinguishing that act from something more abhorrent. Um, and then corrective action is, this is more in the field where uh, I'm, I'm inclined to practice when you've done wrong is, you know, you, you make restitutions and accept responsibility. And then, yeah, this mortification one seems to be more about like, public flagellation and accepting responsibility and, and consequences. And then per our discussion of Kanye West, I think you could go further than this and maybe add to Benoit at least one more category, which I would just call defiance. Like I, I'm doing what I want and I don't care that you think it's wrong. Um, or or that I think that could also lean on like the, the free speech. I know that might be uh, in line with the reducing offensiveness strategy or the denial strategy, but I think it's its own thing when someone says sort of in a Trumpian vein, uh, I don't actually care. Yeah, I agree with that. And, that, you know, I, I think we've discussed this in one of our earlier uh, podcasts about how traditional um, crisis communication strategies probably need to be re-envisaged nowadays because there are additional strategies. And the other part of this, which we haven't talked about, which is probably worth talking about in the future, is the stratification of the market so you know the world is a big place you can reach a lot of people with social media 
And there's going to be a group of people to whom defiance is extremely appealing um, for their own personal reasons. And so that that market, that submarket may actually be sufficiently large to actually sustain somebody. Whereas I think in the past, you know, the the reaction to these kind of events was governed more by the mean of the average population. Now the population has been partitioned into a lot of subgroups. And the question then becomes which of those subgroups are the ones that you're appealing to. Um, I think in general, you know, if you look at the at Tiger Woods and some of the other um uh very prominent sports people who've had events happen in their lives. The large majority of them uh, adhere to um, a general strategy of trying to rebuild their base um, through ultimately some kind of an apology and a pu very public promise to uh, both avoid that behavior in future, but more importantly, you know, to rebuild the trust of the population with them. And and I think that's certainly been the case um, with Tiger Woods and with many of the other athletes who found themselves in these circumstances. So, Mark, maybe another dimension of this that we should uh, just reinforce here is the degree to which large corporations have a lot of infrastructure that are that work through these these complex um calculations around what this means to to business so the ins the insurance fallouts and the stock market fallouts are really significant so one of the other articles that we brought up is uh called celebrity endorsements firm value and reputation risk evidence from the tiger woods scandal and this was probably the most uh, famous article in those kind of early first couple of years of this uh, where someone quantified what what these companies lost and and this article made headlines because it said you know, that, um, that these companies may have lost up to uh, $1.5 billion of market value in the early days of the crisis. And so, uh, yes, this is in Management Science, Volume 60, Number 1, and we'll put that in the notes. But I found that interesting that they they tabulated what they would call the abnormal returns of um, specifically the main sponsors. I think it was, is it, uh, it was um, Gillette, uh, Nike, uh, Gatorade and Accenture and Electronic Arts and Electronic Arts and so in total uh, tracking how these folks um, responded to the scandal and then the the net effect on on their company's uh, valuation by way of these abnormal stock market returns. Mark, is there anything that jumped out in this in this paper for you? No, I think it, it, the only thing that I really would comment on is the issue we raised earlier that you know a lot of this is suppositional and and based on. Um, intuition. It's really hard to prove any of the facts that this that this uh, uh, that this paper talks about. But in reality, you know, the stock market prices are an observable phenomenon, and they did do their best to use observable phenomena. I think the one thing this paper doesn't do, for the reasons that you articulated, is it doesn't quantify the value of just like heading for cover from a company perspective, uh, not uh, essentially putting your relationship with the celebrity on ice, and then later on reemerging as that. Um, celebrity uh, starts to regain some of the credentials they had before, kind of like, uh, you know, when people bought stocks uh, a month after the Enron, or not Enron, the uh, Lehman Brothers collapse, you know, those people did pretty well in the stock market for the next 10 years because, you know, buy low, sell high. And, you know, there's an opportunity for companies it, to do that in this domain as well. So I, I think, you know, this paper is really helpful because it does talk in a lot of depth about um, how uh, these events can acutely impact the value of a company. What it doesn't do and what it's not designed to do and can't do in the timeline that's examined is examine the long-term benefits or risks of, of a company essentially maintaining their relationship at, on the QT, at least for the short term. And Mark, what do you, I mean, there's one one kind of um, 
like a, a thoughtful passage in here where the authors are essentially saying like, this, this is likely the case that's going to send some ripples across the world when we think about celebrity endorsement and, and specifically just the, the risk side of it. Yeah, I think so. This was actually articulated in a couple of the other articles, too, that that um, this was probably the event that led to companies starting to realize that social media and instantaneous access to this kind of um uh, information which might have never been disseminated in the past or might have disseminated very slowly in the past can have an instantaneous and enormous impact on um, a company. And so I, it probably, I would be almost certain that it led to companies investing in their crisis management response. And so that, you know, crisis management became something that you have to be prepped and ready to go on on Sunday morning, which is something we talked about in the first episode when we were talking about Rogers and the fact that Rogers very clearly, when they had their enormous outage in Canada, did not have uh, a backup plan in place for crisis management on a Sunday afternoon. Um, It's very clear to me that these enormous companies where billions of dollars are at risk have invested in the infrastructure required to be able to respond immediately should an event occur. And I think the other thing is that as these events have become more common, um, I don't think that's because, you know, celebrities or behaviors are behaving less badly than they used to, or more badly than they used to. They probably actually are better behaved now because they're being watched so closely. It's just because it's so easy to amplify one of these events. And so, um, whereas in the past, you know, a celebrity endorsement with a very famous football player, um, might have been a very low risk in, uh, investment because the likelihood that any of their um, contraventions of societal norms would be reported was almost zero. Now these companies have to go into these relationships um, with constant vigilance to make sure that they aren't going to suffer brand damage when what might have been a trivial event 50, 25 years ago suddenly is on the front page of not only you know the, the throwaway um, media, uh, but also the mainstream media. The mainstream media sees this as a ticket to sell, um, uh, to sell eyeballs to sponsors. So you know the Kobe Bryant uh, stuff we talked about, uh, or we is in some of the reading we'll post below. You know, led to a lot of interest in in his behavior. The the stuff that's happened in the last week that we started at started talking about at the beginning of this, you know, is on front of everybody because all the major news media covered it, and they cover it because. Uh, it's a way of them increasing their market value. Yeah, yeah. The Kobe Bryant one was interesting too. And one of the articles makes that distinction between the severity of the of the um, the claims as well. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think Kobe Bryant was actually accused of sexual assault as well as extramarital affairs, and that was largely debunked. And he seemed to have recovered. And I think that his crisis, at least my my feeling of it in public consciousness has kind of faded over time. Whereas I think Tiger is always going to be quite associated with this. Maybe it was, there was just more drama around his, his crisis and and more of a celebrity endorsement kind of ripple as well. But that one just seems to loom larger in the consciousness, even though in some ways the allegations are less severe. I don't know what you think of that. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. Obviously the potential for criminal charges indicates a degree of, um, liability, which doesn't exist in in many of these cases, uh, you know, behavior that is not in keeping with people's expectations uh, may actually feed into the sort of popular culture because people like to look into those kind of activities but are afraid to take part in them themselves or don't have access to them. Uh, whereas I think the large majority of people who exist in 
certainly Western civilizations and most civilizations are going to avoid criminal activities just because of the, you know, the potential consequences of those. I, so I agree completely. Um, again, um, being not an expert in particularly the background of these things, we're really just using information we can source from publicly available news feeds. Hey, Brady, we probably should just keep an eye on the clock. But um, in summing up today's episode, what would you say about management of crisis and how um, Tiger Woods serves as an exemplar for how to do this or not do this? Well, Mark, it's, it's interesting to comment. So it's hard for me to put a pin in whether this was good or bad PR management. And there's so many dimensions. So I think I think today's episode might end in a bit of an aporia. It might be a little bit open-ended because I think, um, you know, interestingly, the other article that uh, we will post, uh, Managing Negative Celebrity Endorser Publicity, it talks about how Nike actually... Um, probably bolstered its uh, its stock market returns by keeping, uh, maintaining uh, Tiger Woods uh, versus the actions of the other firms. So this is one where, um, you know, I my, my initial gut reaction was Tiger's apology was too spread out, um, did what did not address the crisis quickly enough, um, was haphazard in the sense that there are at least two or three public statements before uh, very controlled and what at the time felt like an inauthentic apology. But then remarkably, he seems to have not only just recovered, but at least from a, if wealth or or prosperity or market is one of the barometers of whether you've done well or not. Um, you know, there, there are some indices here that Tiger's done quite well weathering these things. And, and I think that leads us back to another theme that we've had before is like the the bad actor in crisis communications. Like, why do people sometimes weather these things? Um, I think another thing, and maybe it'd be best to talk about in um, in another episode, is my gut says that Tiger had such enormous reputation capital, and that plays into this somehow. So uh, you know, he he surely acted in a in a way that we would all find abhorrent. But I think he carried so much weight in the public consciousness that somehow that also helped him. And I think that you know Nike's action of maintaining him as a sponsored individual through it and supporting him was an indication of that. You kind of see that with Dior and Johnny Depp as well. You know, they stuck with him while his other sponsors dropped him and uh, waited for him to be kind of vindicated in that Amber Heard trial. So, um, yeah, and I, I'll just add one thing to that. Subsequently, Tiger Woods had another event which was very publicly portrayed in the media, which was this horrific car accident um, where he was very seriously injured. Uh, and in some ways, sounds like he was lucky to survive. And the fallout up from that has been very different. Obviously, the circumstances are very different, but you know, you wonder how much of the the fallout being very different is actually due to him now having people who surround him, whose job it is to handle these kind of events and make sure that the impact is optimally mitigated rather than letting it run kind of wild. I suspect that you know, having done a bit of reading about this now and having some understanding of how these things should be managed, that he has put a lot of time and energy into assembling a team which helps him to understand how he should manage these events when they happen in the future. And and I think that's one of the messages I'd like to convey to people that, again, if you're in a position where brand management is extremely important to you, unless you have experience in the area, you know, 
it, it's it's undoubtedly best to obtain consultation with experts who know how to do these things because the cost of not having instantaneous access to those kind of resources probably vastly exceeds the costs of retaining those people. Mark, well said. Um, I'd like to end this, Mark, if we can just take two more minutes. We also promised updates on previous files, and I did get an update from the government after writing them about Roger's outage. And I wonder if you will humor me to just read the response that I got. But interesting, yeah, sure. it seems very clear that the outage at least contributed to uh, what appears to be a quite a good deal of conjecture and government action to try to stop Rogers' work towards some kind of uh, monopoly or or growth by the acquisition of other of other companies. So, in response to my query, I received from the government of Canada. Good day, on behalf of the Honorable Francois Philippe Champagne, Minister of Innovation, Science, and Industry. I am pleased to respond to your email, conveying your concerns regarding the proposed acquisition of Shaw's Communications Inc. by Rogers Communications Inc and the Rogers network outage of July 8th, 2022. And just again, this is a multi-billion dollar merger that was had been proposed that has been slowed, if not stopped by the government. And I'll continue. The minister has indicated he will not permit the wholesale transfer of Shaw's wireless licenses to Rogers, as it is incompatible with the government of Canada's policies for spectrum and mobile service competition. Competition is a driving force behind innovation and efficiency in the telecommunications sector, and has been a central commitment of this government. The government has been clear that greater affordability, competition, and innovation in the telecommunications sector are critical in today's society and economy. These objectives have been central to its work in the sector and will be front and center during the minister's assessment of any spectrum license transfer requests associated with the proposed merger. I will note that the proposal is also subject of, to review by the Competition Bureau. Regarding the reliability and resilience of telecommunications services, the government shares your concerns and is taking steps to address this, these issues. On September 7th, 2022, the minister announced that following his direction in July, telecommunications companies had reached a formal agreement to strengthen network reliability through emergency roaming, mutual aid, and communication protocol. The minister further announced a series of actions and work as part of the Government of Canada's new telecommunications reliability agenda to address this comprehensively. This includes direction to the Canadian Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee to develop a set of recommendations to improve the reliability of Canada's telecommunications network and to the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission to continue collaborating with the Department of Innovation, Science, and Economic Development Canada as the Commission advances its work on telecommunications reliability. The Minister has also instructed ISED to review all appropriate regulatory measures to be implemented under pending legislation aimed at strengthening the reliability and safety of our networks. Once again, thank you for writing and please accept my best wishes. Sincerely, Susan Hart, Executive Director General, Spectrum Management Operations Branch, spectrum and telecommunications sector. So for me, Mark, I, that doesn't actually say, oh, we're not doing this because of the outage, but it says that we're not doing this based on, we're not going to allow this to proceed based on uh, competition um, uh, desires of the government. Um, I'd say six of one, half dozen of the other, though. I think they may have had a better chance of getting this through had that crisis not been raised to national attention. And I assume the letter I got here is a form letter that the government's giving everyone who's written uh, on this issue. Uh, any last comments on on this Rogers one? Yeah, just to reiterate for our listeners who aren't in Canada that um, the, the outbreak was enormous. Uh, as you said, I think very articulately, there's no US carrier that has the market penetration of either of the two big carriers in Canada. And so having them go down for an extended period of time probably resulted in people dying because they couldn't get a hold of their emergency services. So this is a real issue. Um, the second thing is that uh, telecommunications in Canada are vastly more expensive than they are in the US. So for individual Canadians, 
probably most of whom have a cell phone. You know, these are very large purchases in terms of real money. Uh, I've suddenly realized that a lot of my colleagues have U.S. cell phones because it is actually cheaper to buy and operate a U.S. phone number in Canada um, than it is to buy and operate a Canadian number in Canada. So, you know, this is a really important issue and further anything that impedes our ability to have more reliability in the Canadian telecommunications network is not to be encouraged. Well said. All right. Well, that's it for us this week, Mark. Anything else you wanted to add or we will sign off? I think we can sign off and we'll uh, see everybody or talk to everybody with our next episode. uh, And please pay attention to the space so you can see what we're going to drivel on about in the future. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) See you next time, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.